Well, Ruth Hamlin is a basketball player. She played in college and played for a while in the WNBA, the Women's Professional Basketball League. Most recently, she's played for a team in Europe. And she was wrapping up the season last March of her European team, uh, just about ready to uh, come back home, when all of a sudden the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, the, the playoffs were canceled, uh, for her team. Uh, she just barely made it back from Europe because flights were being canceled, borders were being closed. But she, she got back home to home in Canada, and she was so looking forward to something that she has dreamed of all of her childhood, and she has worked so hard for for the last eight years. And that was that Ruth had received an invitation to be part of the Canadian women's basketball team at the Tokyo Olympics. And as she got home, she began to monitor the news and hoping there'd be improvement and this thing's going to go away. And, and she said the more she watched the news, the more anxiety she felt. And, uh, uh, some of us could understand that. The more she watched the news, the more anxious she got. The more anxious she got, the more depressed she got. And then that when that call came in uh, from the Canadian Olympic Committee that there would be no Tokyo Olympics last year, they were postponing them for a year, she said, I was just crushed, just depressed by the whole thing. She said, and that's when I started reading my Bible again. I pressed into God's word. And as I pressed into God's word, she said, I began to have my depression lifted and my anxiety just went away. I had a peace that surpassed all human understanding. She understands what it really means to spend a season on the sideline for the past year, not being able to uh, practice basketball, to play basketball. But for most of us in this room, something about this past year has felt like a season on the sidelines. And it's felt like things have not been normal. Uh, our MSU football team is playing games right now. They didn't have a normal season in the fall. And maybe for you, you're not an athlete, but the season has not felt normal. Maybe it didn't feel normal in your business. Maybe it didn't feel normal in your family life. Maybe it financially certainly hasn't felt normal for you. And as a result of that, you feel a little bit like you've been sidelined. Maybe for some of you, it is your faith that feels like it's been sidelined. Uh, for some people, not being able to gather in person just was not very fulfilling. And so when we came back, many of you decided you were going to be in church. But for some people, they've just kind of dropped off the radar. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm watching online. I watch online while I'm doing other things. Or maybe I'm, they're not watching online at all. And maybe, maybe you're here this morning in this room. And, and you know, you show up because it's Sunday and we go to church. And that's what my family does. But I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. Oh, you might be surprised at what people are experiencing, walking through, going through. And the person down the pew may have struggles you don't know anything about. But here's what I have discovered. That when... Many people give up on their faith or give up on God. Most of the time, it is because he didn't come through in the way they thought he ought to come through. That he didn't answer the prayer yes, that the healing didn't come, or the divorce was finalized, or the job fell apart, the business fell apart. And so we wonder when those kind of things happened, and we feel sidelined, God, are you, are you even real? 
Is all this stuff just sort of a figment of somebody's imagination that I've bought into? Well, if you're in that boat today or any of those boats, I want to invite you to kind of draw in really close because we're going to talk about a prophet who experienced many of those same thoughts and a prophet did that. And he experienced a season on the sideline. Now, last week, I introduced to you this man named Elijah. And the way this story begins is that the God of Israel, the one true, almighty, all-powerful God, picked a fight with the king of Israel. If God ever picks a fight with you, you're going to lose eventually. But he picks a fight with the king of Israel. The king of Israel's name is Ahab. He has a lovely wife named Jezebel. Um, And they... Uh, decide that they are going to kill this prophet who brought the message from God. And the message from God was, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Actually, it's not going to rain till I tell you. And what happened is it didn't rain for three and a half years. Well, what we expect to happen next in this story is not what happens. Because this man, Elijah, spends a season on the sideline. Look at verse 2 of 1 Kings 17. The word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, saying... Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, the first thing I want you to understand when you're walking through a season on the sideline is this. We need to learn that God answers prayers in unexpected ways. Elijah has gone toe-to-toe, face-to-face, nose-to-nose with Ahab, the king of Israel, and he said, You've introduced Baal worship. Baal is a false god, an idol. He says, you've introduced Baal worship to to the people of Israel. And God told us in the book of Deuteronomy, when we do that, he'll cut off the rain like turning off a water faucet. And Ahab, God is going to turn off the water because of your idolatry. And as a result of that, what we expect to happen next is we expect for there to be this epic confrontation. And what I expect to hear when the word of the Lord came to Elijah a second time is I expect one of those be bold and courageous statements. I expect him to say, Elijah, have a steel backbone. I'm on your side, Elijah. You just stand there toe to toe with Ahab. And don't you fear. You know, 365 times in the Bible, the Bible says, do not fear. I'm looking for one of those right here but I don't find it. Instead, what I hear is God telling this prophet, go hide. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. Go hide. Uh, that, that sounds like words to a coward. Why would God say go hide? Well, there are two reasons, kind of two tracks like a railroad track. The first one is a physical reason because Ahab had put a contract out on Elijah's head. He is a wanted man, dead or alive, preferably dead. Ahab doesn't care. Just kill him. So God is hiding him to save his life. But the second reason is that that word hide has more to do with personal personal development than personal protection. See, what that word hide means is kind of like to drop off the grid, 
to be in a solitary place, to be alone. And sometimes God does his best work in our lives when we are alone. When we move away from the noise and the busyness of routine, God does his best work in your life and mine. When Elijah is introduced to us, he is called a prophet. By the end of this chapter, he's going to be called something a little bit different. You see, prophet is his calling. It's his office. It's what he's to do for God. But by the end of this chapter, he's not going to be called the prophet Elijah. He's going to be called the man of God. That's his character. And he's already called to be a prophet, but God's got to develop his character. And so he sends him away to this solitary place. And he begins to answer Elijah's prayers in unexpected ways. He says, first of all, Elijah, you're going to survive this. You're going to get through this. I'm going to see to that. I'm going to provide for you. And here's how I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide naturally. There's going to be a brook of water. And I'm going to provide supernaturally. I am going to command the ravens. To bring you little bread and meat, little Subway sandwiches. I'm going to command them to bring them to you in the morning and in the evening. And I'm going to feed you supernaturally. Now here's something really unusual about that. You know in the Old Testament there's this list of animals that the people of Israel would declare unclean. You're not supposed to touch them, not supposed to eat them, not supposed to have anything to do with them. Ravens were unclean. And God says I'm going to use unclean animals to bring you food every day. Naturally, there'll be water. Supernaturally, I'm going to bring you meat and bread every single day. And he also says to, God also says to Elijah, and this isn't a short-term thing. The Bible says that in verse 5, that he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith. He didn't just go there and stay. He didn't just go there and hang out. He didn't go there, there and camp out. He went there and lived alone for a long, long time. And why would God do that in a man's life? Because God does some of his best work in our lives when we shut down from the noise and the busyness and the schedule and the routines that we are in because all of that just shuts out his quiet voice. Sometimes God reveals himself to people when we're alone. Chet Hanks is the son of Tom Hanks. He's a musician. He's appeared on the show Empire a couple of times and and sort of a fledgling actor. And uh, a few years ago, when he was a much younger man, he was sent away to a camp. Uh, He had some problems in his life, and he's sent there to kind of rehab these problems. And it was in Utah. It was in the Utah desert. I mean, just a deserted place. And Chet Hanks says that he grew up as an atheist. Didn't believe there was a God, didn't care anything about God. But one afternoon, he went out on a hike kind of by himself. And he was on this bluff overlooking a canyon. And the sun's beginning to set. And before this, all he could see was just this red sand and rocks. And it was just ugly. He said, all of a sudden, it was like the sunlight began to paint all of these all of these rocks and the, the shadows began to form all this beauty. And he said in that moment, he encountered God. 
He says, I knew in that moment there was a God. There was a God who created this. And in an instant, he said, I moved from being an atheist to a theist, to believing there was a God. Now, you need to pray for Chet because he needs to take another step, and that is to figure out who that God is in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's a step in the right direction because God sometimes reveals himself in the still and the quiet and the aloneness of a desert place. Well, that's exactly what's happening to Elijah. Elijah is growing. Now, how is he growing? Well, maybe it's he's growing out of his pride. Elijah has had an audience with the king. We don't know how often he spoke to the king. We know he did once. But he's kind of a palace prophet. And now he's out in a deserted place all by himself. Maybe God is using this to destroy his pride. And maybe what God has done in my life and maybe in some of your lives is to chip away at some of our pride. Maybe it was fear. Elijah is a wanted man. Ahab wants to kill him. But by the next chapter of this book, what we're going to get to next week, Elijah is going to need to be fearless when it comes to man. Elijah needs to learn who to fear. You fear God. You don't fear man. You fear the one who can send your soul to hell, not the one who can take this temporal life. That's what Jesus said. And Elijah needs to learn some lessons about who to fear. Maybe it's resentment. Maybe Elijah got out there and pouted and and was mad because his privileges had been taken away and his perks had been taken away and he's out there all by himself. All of his friends have been taken away. And maybe he needed to be purged of his resentment. Whatever it was, God is at work. Here's what we think. We think if I'm waiting, I'm wasting. If I'm waiting, I'm wasting time. If I'm waiting, I'm wasting money. If I'm waiting, I'm just wasting away. But the better perspective is this. If I'm waiting, I'm not wasting. God is working. God is working in the waiting. I need to learn to look for unexpected answers to prayers. One morning, Elijah wakes up. and He goes over to the brook, and it's not running as strong as it was yesterday, but he gets a drink. The ravens bring his little sandwiches. He eats. The next morning, he gets up. And the little stream, the little brook is down to a trickle. He gets a drink. The next morning he wakes up and there's nothing but wet sand. His brook is dried up. What do you do when your brook dries up? He was depending on that brook. That brook was important. A man needs water in the desert. What am I going to do without my brook? Some of you have lived that life for the last year. I know people who work in the restaurant industry who have lived on less than 50% of what they made before the pandemic. Their brook dried up. For some of you, you were so dependent on a person in your life, and that person is no longer in your life for whatever reason. Death, divorce, your brook dried up. I have wonderful friends. They were part of our church, Um, loved this church. But they are also part of the United States Air Force, and they go where they are sent. So they moved away. And where they've moved to, 
They just cannot find a church. I hear this from them every time we talk. We just can't find a church like First Baptist Church. Bob, would you put a satellite campus kind of next door to our house, please? No. Not being led to do that. You know, our kids don't like the programs at one church. We don't like the preaching at the other church. The worship's bad at the other. Could we just have First Baptist Church? Their brook dried up. What they were depending on isn't there anymore. What do you do? Well, here's what happened to Elijah. His brook dries up. Do you know why Elijah's brook dried up? I'm going to tell you why. Elijah's brook dried up because he prayed for it to. Really? Yes. Listen to this. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. So it didn't. For three and a half years, it didn't rain. You see, Elijah prayed for things to change. And then they did. And he didn't like it. Here's what most of us say. God, I want you to change things. Oh, God, I want you to move. God, I want you to do something different in our world. But leave my little world alone. I don't want my brook to drop. But Elijah experiences this answer to prayer. And the answer to prayer is that God is going to humble an entire nation. He's going to crush a false God in response to Elijah's prayers. But it means his brook's got to dry up. Because the brook was natural. It wasn't supernatural. Now that raven thing, that was supernatural. So you need to learn that God answers prayers in unexpected ways. Second. Look for how often God provides enough. The desert place is truly desert. There's only sand now. There's no water. And God has promised Elijah he's going to survive this. So something's got to change. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives. I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. 
The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. They had enough. When you're walking through a season on the sidelines, look for how often God provides just enough. There are a couple of interesting things about these places that God sends Elijah to. He sent him to the brook Cherith first. The the word Cherith means to cut down, like to cut down a tree. It can also be used in a euphemism, to cut down to size. God was cutting Elijah down to size, pulling some things out of his life he didn't need. Zarephath literally means to smelt. You may not be familiar with that, but when you take iron ore, you smelt it. It burns away the dross and it leaves the pure uh, iron ore or, or metal that you can use. But anywhere there was a smelting facility, there was also a forge where you made swords or you made implements and tools. At Cherith, God cut Elijah down to size. At Zarephath, he's going to forge him into a sword in his hand. That's what's happening here. A couple of other things about, or one other thing about these two places. I know these biblical places, they're kind of hard to, to grab onto in your mind. and there's no, We don't have any frame of reference. But the Bible gives us a little hint. Cherith is on the east side of the Jordan River. Zarephath is in Sidon. Sidon is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. These places were a hundred miles apart, at least. Now, here's what goes on. God says to Elijah, Elijah, I want you to go from Cherith to Zarephath. I want you to walk a hundred miles. And that 100 miles is through territory controlled by Ahab. He is going to walk 100 miles through territory controlled by Ahab, unprotected, unguarded, with only God as his protection. I told you we got to root out some fear here. So Elijah goes to Zarephath. And on the way, he's told by the Lord that a widow will provide for him. Now, Elijah must have thought there is going to be this wealthy widow with a storehouse of grain and a vat full of olive oil, and we are going to eat freely. We, we are going to be provided for so well. When Elijah gets to Zarephath, he finds this poor pauper widow woman. She is penniless. She doesn't even have any firewood. She's gathering up sticks to make a fire. And she says to Elijah when he gets there, I've got enough for me and my boy to eat one last meal, and then we're going to starve to death and die. That's what's going to happen. But Elijah says, no. Bring me a little water. She agrees to do that. Make me a cake of bread first. Make me a little bread first. Now, I want to, I want to confront two things about this that some people get confused about. Number one, Elijah was not being a male chauvinist. This wasn't, woman, make me a sandwich. That is not what he was saying to her, okay? What he is asking her to do is put God first. Put the true God first. In this case, he's the only representative of God. In your case, that's not me. That's the church. Put his kingdom first and his work through the church. So it's not male chauvinism 
And it's not prosperity gospel. There are some people who look at this and they would preach this to say, hey, if you give the preacher something, then God will give you what you need. God will give you a big house. God will give you a new car. That is not what this means. She was under a cultural obligation to hospitality. In that culture, if you thought a person was a prophet and you refused to take them into your home and, and give them hospitality, a place to stay, food to eat, you could be under a curse. That was her belief. And so it wasn't prosperity gospel, and it's not male chauvinism. But what it is, is God looking to provide for her. There's something really interesting about this woman. Jesus brought it up in a sermon about her. Some of you might not know this, but the very first sermon Jesus ever preached, he preached in a synagogue in his hometown. And his text for the sermon was this text. Luke chapter 4 verse 25 tells us, But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. She is an outsider. She is a religious outsider. She's Sidonian. She's not Israeli. She's a religious outsider. She's a pagan Baal worshiper, not a worshiper of the one true God. In many ways, she's a gender outsider. She is a woman. She's a widow. They had no rights, really, in all, in all manner of speaking. And God is always pursuing the outsider. Do you know how many widow women that Elijah passed as he walked that hundred miles? There must have been hundreds of them. But God sent him to this lonely outsider. I'm going to tell you something. God is always looking for people who will go to the outsider and draw them in. God is always looking for people who will go to those who are outside the sphere of his mercy and grace and draw them in. God wants the outsider to be brought in to be insiders. That's what he wants. And so Elijah is sent to this woman. But something miraculous happens. She does what Elijah says the Lord tells her to do. And then God does what he says he would do. You know how many times in the Bible there's this if and then then? If you will do this, then I will do this. God says, if you will do this, God says, then I will do this. And he says, if you will make the prophet a little bread and you'll feed him, then every day when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be enough flour and enough oil. They didn't win the lottery. There was no storehouse of flour and no big, huge vat of, of oil. It wasn't a lump sum lottery. It was what Jesus would have called daily bread. That's what it was. It was enough. You know, every now and then, I'm driving down the road, here in town, and I look up and I see one of those big billboards for the lottery. Now, I don't pay much attention to it when it's like 20 million. I mean, 20 million. But man, I, I have to be honest, it kind of gets my attention when it gets like 213 million. I said, Jesus, I could do a lot of good for your kingdom with 213 million dollars. I can do a lot of good for Bob too, but... But they didn't win the lottery. It just showed up every morning. God provided 
enough. Some of you can look back on your life this year and you can say, you know what? I didn't have everything I wanted. I didn't do all the things I wanted to do. But God provided enough in this season on the sidelines. I want to tell you, though, that miracle of multiplication doesn't just affect your personal finances. It affected your church this year. Let me give you an example. You know, when the pandemic hit, I have to be honest with you. I know the Bible tells me I'm not supposed to worry, but I was worried. And I'm going to tell you why I'm wor I was worried. I, I obviously was worried about myself, my family, but more than that, I'm a leader of a large group of people on our staff. And when I say staff, some of you think ministry staff. And that's significant in our church. But we also have administrative staff. We have secretarial staff. Uh, we have maintenance staff. We have custodial staff. And we have a kitchen staff. And many of those people are breadwinners in their families. And I'm thinking, God, they depend on me as a leader. They are counting on me. And, and I got to come through for them. And Lord, I, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm worried. I was concerned about the ministries of our church, where we're going to have to curtail things, stop doing things, cut things back. I was concerned about our mission commitments because there are those on the mission field that are depending on us too. And I'm like, I, I don't know what we're going to have to give them. I was really concerned. But every week, every week, God provided for you and you provided for your church. God provided for you and then you'd provide for your church. And you know what? It was always enough. We never failed to meet one mission commitment. We never cut a single ministry. And no one at First Baptist Church Wichita Falls in the last year lost their job because of COVID-19. Nobody. Because God provided for you and you provided for God's work. But there was also a miracle in the multiplication. In the course of the last 12 months, we also paid off a $1 million debt at our West Campus. As of this week, our church is completely debt-free. <laughs> praise God for that. I praise God for that, but I thank you for being like the widow who said, what I've got, I'll give. What I've got, I'll use. And God came through, folks. God came through. Look for how often God provides. Enough. Enough. One final thought. Lean into God's power when life gets confusing. Look at verse 17. Kind of the final part of the chapter. Verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You, you have come to bring up my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called the Lord and said, O Lord, my God. Have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. 
And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down to the, from the upper room in the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You need to lean into God's power when life gets confusing. Everything's rocking along just fine. Now, it's not luxurious, but they have enough. And then one day, the little boy gets a fever. And mom puts him in the bed and does her best to take care of him, but the fever gets worse, and eventually he dies. And she asked the same question that some of you have asked. That question about, have my iniquities been brought up before me and my son is that means this. Did God take my son because of my sin? Some of you in this room have gone through calamity and tragedy and you've asked that same question. Did God rain down judgment upon me because of my sin? Now, she never denies she's a sinner and she would have deserved it. But she wants to know. And so Elijah, he's the prophet. He's been to seminary. He's the theologian. He goes upstairs and gets on his knees and says, God, why did you do this? He doesn't have answers. He's just got questions too. God, why did you do this? I don't understand. This is confusing. Let me tell you something. The true God of the universe will often confuse and confound you. He does not operate like you and I think he ought to operate. You see, as a result of what's going on here, this, this woman has, had seemingly lost her faith. And Elijah's is on the brink. There was a movie made out of a novel a few years ago called The Stepford Wives. It was remade into a movie, I think, about 2004. And the gist of the story is that a couple moves to a Connecticut town. And life there is just perfect. Too perfect. It's weird perfect. Like the wives are always perfectly dressed. Dinner is always made on time. They satisfy whatever their husband's needs may be. It, it, it just looks perfect. Long story short, by the end of the movie, what you find out is, sorry, spoiler alert, it's a 17-year-old movie. If you hadn't seen it by now, it's not my fault. But the spoiler alert is the women are robots. They're androids. And they have been programmed by their husbands to do for them whatever their husbands want done. They're not wives. They're a projection of their husband's desires. Tim Keller, who is a pastor, theologian, author, says many Christians have a step for God. They've created a God in their image, the God that they want. Let me tell you something. If your God never confuses you, if your God never confronts you, 
If your God never challenges your moral choices or your political views, you probably aren't worshiping the true God. You're probably worshiping a creation of your own religious imagination. Because God does things different from me, and he does things better than me, and he does things that I don't understand. Sometimes he causes my brook to dry up. And sometimes it's even more painful than that. But Elijah leans in to God's power. And even though he is confused, he says, God, I know you could do this. Oh, Lord, my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. And in one of only five resurrection accounts in the Bible, before the resurrection of Jesus, the little boy is revived. Those blue lips turn pink again. That ashen complexion is filled with that, that pink hue. And he comes down the stairs. And then he's got this little boy in his arms and he hands him to his mama. But look at what happens as a result of that. It's what happens in the, in the woman's life. It's what happens in the outsider's life that's important. She says, now I know. Now I know that you're really a man of the true God and that the word of the Lord, the one true living God that is in your mouth is the truth. That's what happens. She is drawn in. The outsider has become an insider by grace. Now, it was a little traumatic. Yes, it was. But it's still truth. When you're sidelined, learn that God answers prayers in unexpected ways. Look for the ways that he's provided enough and lean into his power during that season. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning to say that we have known the frustration and the anxiety and the depression that has come and swept into some of our lives as a result of the last 12 months or maybe events that weren't even associated with that, but we felt this sense of emptiness. But we will look to you and we will turn to you and we will trust you in the midst of all of this. Lord, I pray for those in this room who've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. They may believe there's a God, but they've never trusted Jesus. I pray that this would be a day to turn from their sin and totally trust that what he did on the cross was sufficient for forgiveness. And when he came forth from that grave, that he gave us the gift of life. I pray for others in this room who have lost their faith, that today would be a day of renewal that today would be a day of you reviving that which has grown cold within them. Draw us back very close to you. Lord, in these moments of worship, do something very special among us. In Jesus' name, amen.